0: Hello, my friends, and welcome again to The Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me, friends. This is our fourth episode exploring the book of Leviticus. We've looked at sacrifice and atonement. We've looked at holiness as a concept and that holiness continuum. And we want to look today at how the Israelites, together as a nation and as individuals, we're called to display holiness the practice of covenant ethics. Now, I've made the point several times, particularly in the book of Exodus, how things that we say about the Old Testament, about how, for example, in the Exodus that God redeems his people from slavery and he graciously brings them to himself and commissions them. And, and you think as a New Testament believer, you think, hey, wait a minute, that sounds really familiar. And I say to you, good, it should, because... God is in here in the Old Testament laying out the pattern. Now, the Old Testament's not a made-up story that God uses to teach us. It's all about us. The Old Testament's a real story. These events actually happen to real people. But God in His sovereignty has laid out a pattern for us in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and throughout most of the Old Testament that we're able to lay on top of our life and see, hey, God God doesn't change. And what God does for His people and what God calls for us to do in response— that's really consistent from the beginning of Scripture all the way to us and all the way to the end. So I hope that you will be able to see a lot of what I talk about today that's happening in the life of the nation of Israel should be happening in our lives as well. And in fact, though I will try my best to say, you know, they and them talking about Israel, I'm also going to be talking about us and we, because it's really, really easy to blend those two together. So forgive me if I do But you know what I'm trying to say, that what's happening in the life of the Israelites should be happening in my life and your life as well. So Israel is called to be holy. Now again, holiness is one of those words that we can use a lot in the Christian community without ever actually stopping to think what it means. The primary meaning of holiness is not actually purity, it's separation, to be set apart. So when we say that God is holy, we are saying first and foremost that God is the transcendent one. He is the one greater than everything. He's on a whole other level. Holiness also brings with it connotations of uniqueness. So when we say that God is holy, we're saying he's the only one up there on that level. It's not God and Zeus and Baal. No, it's God, God alone. He is the only transcendent God. But holiness also does mean purity. God is the sinless, perfect one. And so that also is included with the word holiness. So we are called to be holy. Now here's what you have to keep in mind. Biblically speaking, both for the Israelites and for Christians, we are already holy in our status before God. Both for the Israelite and for the Christian, God has already called us to himself. God has already set us apart God has already entered into a unique relationship, and we already should be seeing holiness work its way out into our day-to-day life. As Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has already chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So this is past tense. You're already chosen. You're already holy. Holy. The same happens in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. To sanctify means to make holy, to set apart you were sanctified. So, believer in Corinth, believer listening to my voice right now, you are right now holy in your status before God. So, when we meet this call to holiness in Leviticus, the foundation for that is the status that God has already given us. And so, we are being called, they are being called to become holy in their behavior. For the Israelites and for us, the desire of God is that we would grow up into our status that we would become more and more what we already are in Christ our holy status would more and more break out into our day-to-day life and would be matched by holy behavior leviticus 19:2 to the israelites god says speak to all the congregation of the people of israel and say to them you shall be holy for i the lord your god am holy remember they're already holy in the status department God is here calling on them to become holy in the behavior department. And again, a, a parallel account in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul, writing to Christians, says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Remember, sanctification is the process by which Christians are transformed little by little into the image of Jesus. That over time, we think, speak, act, feel, and desire more and more like Jesus. It's a growth in holiness. We're already holy in status. We're being called to become holy in our behavior. So before we talk about how we do holiness, how the Israelites were to do holiness, how we do holiness, let's stop and just ask an even more fundamental question. Do Christians today, and did the Israelites back then need to be holy? Well, if we're asking if we if we or they had to be holy in order to be accepted by God, the answer is an emphatic no. God chose the Israelites when they were idolatrous, grumbling, and complaining. When they were sinners, they had nothing to offer Him, and He chose them. The same is true for us. But if we're asking, do Christians need to be holy in the sense that should holiness characterize our life after our acceptance by God, the answer is an emphatic yes. The Israelites and Christians today needed to be holy. And this holiness that God demanded was to be life-encompassing. It's not just at church on Sunday or at the synagogue on Saturday. It's 24-7, 365, every area of your life. And for the Israelite, this calling would demonstrate their relationship with God. God's holy, so they're holy. A a Gentile should be able to look into the life of an Israelite and say, Oh, they must worship Yahweh because I see them acting like Yahweh. It would also demonstrate their separation from the world, that they were called to be a people set apart, not building walls to keep people out, but being separate in their behavior and their lifestyle and their choices, but how they use their body and their money and their time to draw people to Yahweh. As you read through Leviticus, you'll notice there are dozens of commands related to money, time, sex, relationships, all of which were intended to set Israel apart from its neighbors. These neighbor commands are summed up like this, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is a call not to abuse others for self-exalting gain, but to serve others in God-exalting love. Now, to spur his people on towards covenant love, God reminded them of the Exodus, that these people at Mount Sinai receiving this teaching were eyewitnesses of it. It was just a few months ago for them. The call to not forget Their past deliverance from Egypt functioned in three ways. One, it reminded them that they were not their own and must follow God. The Exodus was not an attempt by God to free Israel and then set them out on their own to do whatever they wanted. The Exodus was in many ways just a transfer of ownership. God was saying to Pharaoh, those are actually my people. Give them to me that they may come and serve me. So Leviticus 18, 3 and 4, God says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. I am over you, and you're going to act like me. Second, the reminder of the Exodus helped them recall how they had once been oppressed, And that was intended to push them away from oppressing the poor and helpless in their midst. Leviticus 19.34, You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And third, a reminder of the Exodus. function as a reminder of past grace, that God had been gracious to them when they did not deserve it. And that remembering of that fact that God was good to us and we didn't deserve it, we weren't even looking for him, was intended to give them assurance that there would always be more grace in the future. Leviticus twenty-two thirty-two 32 through 33 says, you shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. God says, I, I already brought you out and I did it for the purpose of sanctifying you to be in relationship with you. Leviticus is clear to profess a love of God with our lips and then go out and live as if we have no God in our lives is unthinkable. Adoration of God cannot live alongside immorality and cruelty. God saved an unholy people in order to make them holy so that they could display his holiness to a lost and dying world. So that brings us back to our question, how do we do holiness? We know what holiness means. We know we need to do holiness. So what are the means for holiness? Now you'll notice there, it's, it comes in the form of an imperative, a command. Unholiness is not an option for God's people. Leviticus 2026, 20, "You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine." So this is not an option. There's no opt-out clause here. God's people must be holy. But this declaration adds some confusion, because in other texts, it appears that Yahweh is in charge of Israel's holiness. As we just read in Leviticus twenty-two thirty-two. 32, God says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So in some passages, Israel is told to be holy. In other passages, God says, I sanctify you. So what is this connection that we need to find between Yahweh's statement of I sanctify you, and Yahweh's imperative of be holy. What's the connection between Yahweh's responsibility and Israel's responsibility? And what I think Leviticus teaches is that God's means of sanctifying his people is a combination of past and future grace. If you take a step back and look at how the 27 chapters of Leviticus are structured, we are given a clue. The first 17 chapters of the book deal with substitutionary sacrifice. How God has made a way for his people to be forgiven of their sins through the death of a substitute. So this is what God has already done. This is past grace. He's already dealt with our sin. The end of the book, Leviticus 26 and 27, God lays out the covenant curses and blessings that he will do in the future based on how Israel responds to his commands. And it's only in the middle, sandwiched in between God's past grace and promises of future grace, that we find God's ethical instructions. And again, this is not a coincidence, and I think there's much to learn from this pattern. Holiness for God's people begins with past grace. So let's examine that first. The foundation of our holiness is what God has already done for us. So what has God done for us? What has God done for Israel? What has God done for us as Christians? Well, he has provided atonement for our sins. He has paid for our sins through the death of an innocent substitute. For the Israelites, it was a ram, a bull, a goat, a dove, a pigeon. We know for us as Christians, it was Jesus. But both the Israelites back then and us today, we get the benefit of this substitutionary death when we place our trust in the efficacy of the substitute. If you don't believe the substitute really does anything, you're not going to trust in it. You're not going to offer it. If we don't believe that Christ's death actually does anything for us, we won't trust in it. God gives us this substitute, but we must place our faith in the efficacy of the substitute. Atonement, God paying for our sins through the death of a substitute, it displays God's hatred of sin. It displays God's holy wrath against sinners. We see in substitutionary sacrifice exactly what our sins should be costing us. Atonement displays God's desire to display His holiness. He does not want to be known as a God who winks at sin or tolerates cruelty within His people. He's not that kind of God. But it also displays His love for His people because God is willing to move heaven and earth to make a way for His people to be with Him. And atonement, properly understood, properly understood, Creates in us and gives us forgiveness. When we trust in the efficacy of the substitute, our sins are wiped away. It creates in us and gives us a overwhelming sense of gratitude. I should be dead, but I'm alive. Trust in the substitute gives us new hearts and new desires. And atonement creates new affections in us. We now love God more than we ever have before. So the foundation of our holiness is the past grace of God, how God has already dealt with our sin. For the Israelites, it was at the altar. For us, it's at the altar that was the cross of Jesus. And this should motivate holiness, not out of some, well, I guess I got to pay God back, none of that sort of debtor's mentality, but rather because, oh my gosh, God is amazing. I want to obey him because I love him, because I, I want to serve him. It not only motivates holiness, it actually enables holiness because trust in the substitute in in encountering God's past grace gives us those new hearts and new desires so that we are now able to pursue holiness and we actually want to pursue holiness. So past grace is a powerful weapon in our fight for holiness, but Leviticus gives us another weapon and that's God's future grace. Now, I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about this to the extent that John Piper has, and so I think I and the authors of this book are borrowing very, very heavily from uh, Dr. Piper, and I'm sure he won't mind, Uh, but understand that he's the one one I first heard use this expression of future grace. So again, the last two chapters of the book, specifically Leviticus 26, are conditioned on faith-generated obedience. God says, here's what I want you to do, And here's what I will do for you in the future if you do this. And of course, it's just blessing after blessing after blessing, blessing in every conceivable sphere of life. But there are also curses. If you don't do this, here's what's going to happen to you. And it's just really, really bad. What God will do for them in the future is completely dependent on how they respond to his commands in the present. What you hope for in the future changes how you live today. And that's not just true in Leviticus. That's true for us. 2 Peter 1.4 says that God has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. God promises to make us outrageously and eternally happy. And if I'm hoping for happiness that only God can give me in that next life, then that's going to change how I behave today. It's going to empower me to say no to sin because sin doesn't come up to me and say, oh, hey, I want to make you really unhappy and ruin your life. No, sin says, oh, this will make you happy. This will make you fulfilled. This You deserve this. You should do this. You should think this. You should say this. But if I believe God's promises about what He'll do for me in the future, the future grace that's waiting for me, I can say to sin, I don't want you. You're going to leave me empty and God will leave me full and satisfied. And even warnings of judgment, divine discipline is a means of grace because God's discipline, his perfect fatherly discipline, meted out at just the right time, just the right way, by just the right means, it was itself a means of grace. It would soften hard hearts and it would nurture dependence on God and his ways. Leviticus 26, 14 through 16 God says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. That's bad. But God said, I don't want to do that to you, but you must be holy. You must respond appropriately. But by telling us what he will do, by warning us of the curse, God is giving us another weapon to fight against sin. You know, again, ideally when sin comes calling to me, right, maybe the temptation to look at pornography and sin comes calling to me and says, oh, hey, you deserve this. It's been a long day, you know, whatever it might be. And it's promising me pleasure. The best thing I can say is, no, I love God. I love my wife. They make me way happier than you ever could. But if I can't muster up that kind of hope for future pleasure, I can say, you will ruin my life. I'll lose my family. I'll lose my job. I'll experience shame and grief and I'll come under the discipline of God. And that is so awful. I don't even want to think about that. That's also going to empower me to say no to sin. God has given us all these weapons because God cares deeply about the holiness of his people. He motivates us by reminding us of his past grace and by pointing us to his future grace, which includes both blessing and and the grace of warning us of discipline. And God does all of this because he loves us. It is a gracious thing that God cares enough about you and your holiness to attempt to motivate you. And God wants you to be holy, and he has done everything necessary for every Christian to become holy in status and holy in condition. So friends, the next time we come together, Lord willing, we're going to look at some lessons we can learn from the book of Leviticus. But for now, take up and read. God bless.